Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This is a this is a, a story that we're going to start with today that has, boy, it has received so much talk, much of it on social media, understandably, because there's a connection there, but elsewhere as well. Uh, it is a new CRTC regulation that is requiring those companies that host podcasts, at least the big companies that host podcasts and some streaming companies, to have to register with the government. So if you are one of the big companies that makes over $10 million a year in revenue from podcasts, you now have to register with the government. A lot of people are saying this may not be censorship, but boy, this is starting to sound like we are heading towards something that we may not want down the road. Let me bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin. He's a senior fellow at Massey College, the former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age joins us now. Jeffrey, thank you for taking time today. My pleasure, Scott. So I want to say off the top that I agree with many of the people who have talked about this already, and you can agree or disagree. I don't believe that what is happening here is censorship. That's been thrown around a bit. I don't believe that's the case now. But I do believe that whenever a government says you have a a source of information, a source of journalism, a source of opinion, and we need you to begin registering with us, alarm bells should be going off. I agree. And there's a lot of suspicion right now about government overreach into our lives. And we can say that it's nobody's business. If, uh, If I want to do a podcast on how left-handed people are dangerous um, (laughs) and that I somehow start making a lot of money from doing that. What I would have said to my students when I was still at U of T Scarborough was, when you go online, when you go to a website, how do you know who they are? I think there is a, a need for, whether the government's doing this in the right way or not is something we can talk about. But I think that there needs to be more transparency and more accountability when we go on the internet. And one of the things that I would say to my students is, go to the bottom of the homepage. Is there a little area that says about us? Mm. And you should click on that and it should say, here's who we are, here's where our money comes from, here's how you can get in touch with us. And if that website has none of those things, you should be highly skeptical and suspicious of it because it may be phishing. That's what I think the government has in part uh, an intention to make sure that the public is better served when they go online. Um, Whether or not this is the right way to do it, um, I I have some doubts as well, but the principle of verification and transparency is not a bad one. Uh, no, I, I w- but I would argue that the way to do this, that the issue here is, I think that people are illiterate on how to determine truth or not truth uh, online. So in my mind, the answer is not to then say, all right, we're going to monitor whether you're telling the truth. The answer is let's teach people how to distinguish whether you should read something or believe something or not. I, but that takes more work. That, that, that would seem to be a more complicated thing and less government intervention is probably required. 
Yeah, you're right. And I think that what the internet has done for us and what the digital culture has done for all of us, it's made us lazy. Yes. It's given us an easy way to gather information to look up various things and but without necessarily checking it and i think that one of the things thank you for mentioning this <laughs> because the book that i that i've written called trusting the news in a digital age is all about this it's about giving people some of the instincts some of the skills where they can where they not that they're going to become really skeptical and hard bitten and cynical but just to say wait a minute where does this come from? Who's making some money off of this? Why should I trust them? And I think that that's important because we are now seeing more actors from offshore, specifically from Russia, uh, putting out websites that look very professional, but that in fact have another purpose, which is to undermine um, our, our politics and our leaders and our institutions. And so we need to be, we need to learn a better set of, of instincts that are going to help us uh, be more correct about what we are downloading and what we yes. are sharing. Yes. And I think that, that there's so much data out there, uh, uh, personal data that is easily scraped, as they say, um, that I think the government having a way in which it says, wait a minute, we need more transparency here. And we're doing it for the best of reasons. I, I hope they are. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. I think our skepticism about what the government does in the area of information is worth uh, having a bit of skepticism, that's for sure, because you never know when this will not work out. That's in, exactly, in exactly. Let's, I got to take a very quick break here, but, um, and, and I will say, you know, when we talk about whether you should be skeptical of something, I remember seeing a while back, a hilarious, um, uh, meme online. And it was a quote from William Shakespeare that says, don't believe everything you read on the internet, William Shakespeare. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that, I mean, it's uh, obviously it's ludicrous, but it's to the point, if something looks ridiculous or unbelievable, maybe check it as opposed to just believing it less. Anytime, Jeffrey, that you have people who are engaged in opinions or thought or ideas, and somehow there is any kind of government involvement, it makes me nervous because it may not be today. What's, what's happening today may not be all that problematic, but boy, it seems like this, uh, none of these things ever end where they start. There's always further steps. They always end up going further and becoming more concerning. Agree with you. And, and my instinct on this is to say, why are they doing this? Who's benefiting? How will they monitor it? How much intrusion into our lives will there be and then on the other hand to say that the government has an obligation at every level to keep us safe uh, the def that definition is of course pretty malleable but i think that there is some obligation on the part of municipal provincial and federal governments to make sure that we are not being taken advantage of and i think that as long as the rules for this uh, monitoring are really clear. 
and that they're reporting to us on an ongoing and regular basis. And it allows people like you, Scott, to be able to call up a minister and say, why are you doing this? I think that level of accountability is good for democracy. Otherwise, we sort of sit in our little corners and we're worried and we're anxious and we're frightened. And that's not the way I think we ought to live in a democracy like Canada. Again, I go to my point that I, I this they will say and they are saying, look, this is it's just for the big companies. We're not doing anything. It's 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 to push Canadian content. It's to make sure that accuracy is there. As soon as you get into it, we are going to try and weed out disinformation. Man, oh man, to me, that is just the the red flag going in every direction because who is determining the disinformation and who is going to make the call and which which podcasts are they going to say are disinformation and which ones are it, like again it opens the door if if a government chooses to use this it opens the door to so many misuses yes and that is a legitimate concern i grant you that on the other hand we are living in a time of heightened anxiety and suspicion and we don't know who to trust and we we don't talk to our neighbors. Um, and I th- my 25 cent theory is that one of the reasons that the vote turnout is so low is because the digital culture causes us to question, well, why should we trust this person as opposed to that person? Why bother voting at all? I think if this has the and I'm not I'm not saying it will because we need to we need more information. That's for sure. Mm. But if one of the positive side effects of this is to make us feel more confident about the institutions in which we take part, then I think that's not that can be a good thing. But yes, you're absolutely right. We also need to be careful that we're not letting too many people take too much too, too much of an advantage of our of our goodwill. I agree with that people are fearful and people are concerned and all those kind of things. What I don't buy, not necessarily from you, but even from a government, would be uh, why am I supposed to believe and have more faith in Bob who works for the CRTC somewhere who's going to scan this than with. Jeffrey, who has put out a podcast, I, I, why, with you, at least if you put out a podcast, I know your name. I can see your, the, the name of the person behind it in most cases, whereas some faceless person at the CRTC doing someone's bidding that I don't have more faith that a faceless government is going to look out for me than the open market does. Well, I think you, I think that's true. However, (laughs) I think one of the things that is emerging right now is the sense of um, offshore interests in what's going on in Canada. Mm, And whether that's the the Kremlin or the Indian government or, or the Trump people in the United States who are trying to influence a convoy, I think that there's some value in knowing who's behind these things. And we need to know their names, how they can, how we can contact them, and who and what their what advantage are they taking in being on the internet like this? This is the issue that the digital culture and now AI um, have both taken advantage of our willingness to share our information, and I think that that's we need to figure out a better way of saying 
what is the information you're gathering and what are you doing with it? Well, we got to go, but one more thing on this one. Tell me what you think would be the response if the liberal government that is in power right now with Justin Trudeau was in opposition and the conservatives brought this idea forward. Tell me that the liberals would not be screaming from every rooftop that this is horribly dangerous because the government is now going to be able to control what you think and hear. It's, it, and the problem with this, the biggest problem is you, not you, the broader you, might say this is okay as long as the government that is in power you are probably in favor of or you trust or you believe is benevolent. But as soon as you are opposed to the government in power, now all of a sudden it's going to be terrifying. That's the nature of politics. Unfortunately, one of the things that we need to develop in this country is to figure out mechanisms of having an, what, what's called an arm's length relationship between certain institutions and governments so that those certain institutions have a level of trust and can be verified and that people can say, all right, I will turn to you, whatever you're yes. doing, and help me figure out whether this is government overreach. That arm's length relationship is something that we need to talk about a little more. Fascinating topic. Jeffrey Dvorkin, uh, if, if you have enjoyed hearing what Jeffrey had to say, and it's, it's always great, uh, go pick up his book, Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and you can trust his book. I'm telling you, it's okay. You can do it. You can believe it. Jeffrey, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thanks a lot. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been innumerable things that have been talked about in recent months and even years in this city. Um, needs, things that people want to get done, programs that people say we need to have among them, clearly issues around addiction, around mental health. This ties into homelessness and encampments and so many other things. However, it appears now that there just isn't money to add more to our services here in Hamilton. At least that's what we're being told. Uh, Ward 4 Councillor Tammy Wang joins me now. Councillor, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Scott. This is, um, boy, I mean, this is such a conundrum because we, we, we have so many things that we need and want to be able to do. I know counselors, lots of them and people around the city have all these things they want, but money is really, really tight. So how do you deal with this? Just as you said, money is tight, but these are also huge responsibilities that are put onto the backs of Hamilton taxpayers. So I think the challenge that this council has is how are we wading through all of these different pots and different needs within the community and ensuring that we're still being held accountable to taxpayers, fiscally responsible, but also how are we spending the money wisely to manage a lot of the situation that we're unfortunately put under? Because as you know, mental health is a health issue. Health has typically been funded by the provincial government. So that has been completely downloaded to the municipality. So again, where do we fit in and how do we ensure that service levels are where they need to be while also being fiscally responsible? Just for clarity here, uh, so people understand, so I understand, if you have, not not you, if you, the broader you, if someone Mm -hmm. out there had a mental health crisis, they could still go to a hospital and get Mm -hmm. treatment. That is looked after by government, the healthcare system, whatever else. So what are we talking about here? What, What is the difference between that and what you're talking about or what this issue is about? 
So yes, if you are having a mental health crisis, you can absolutely go to the hospital. But what about those preventative issues or the after the fact, um, after going being discharged from the hospital, a lot of those are all part of the system and also part of the services that are being delivered. So Perhaps you understand that you are coming to a point where things are really hard and you really need that extra help. Accessing mental health services before it gets to a crisis point like going to a hospital, those are services that are sometimes provided by the municipality, it could be provided by other nonprofits, it could be provided by different healthcare providers that are within the community. Some of those are paid for by the municipality, others might be paid for at the provincial level. Or we talk about after the crisis, what about those ongoing sort of cares and those needs um, as you want to maintain your mental health? Again, those are delivered by uh, nonprofits. It could be delivered by different public health services that are also paid for by the municipality. So again, when we're talking about the spectrum of mental health, we're talking about the full sort of spectrum, everything from the preventative measures all the way to the post post-crisis and healthy living sort of issues. So Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, but I, and so, yes, and I'm, part of what I'm wondering is who do we anticipate then if we don't have the money, who is going to fall through the cracks? Is this the, for lack of a better word, is this the average person who may have a mental health issue or is this more the person who has addiction issues or has mental health issues that are on the street that wouldn't necessarily go to a hospital? This is for everyone the unfortunate aspect is the ones that are on the street they are we're not able to hit to them because they are the ones that fall through the cracks but when we speak about mental health we're talking about the whole of society here everyone from kids all the way to seniors mental health is crucial to everyone and so i think that where we see the most need maybe not the most need actually where we see it being absolutely exemplified is in um, those living on the street because they're the ones that are the most vulnerable. They're the ones that don't have access to those services. And that's that's one of the biggest challenges is how do we also manage and support those that are most vulnerable in our community? So if, if we are to um, assume that things are not necessarily going to change, that there's not a giant pot of money descending from the, the sky and you're suddenly going to have lots more to deal with, you do have to make choices. Council is going to have to make really difficult choices on this. How do you do that? How do you, how do you, I mean, we, we everybody, everybody knows about the possible 14% tax increase and that that's going to have to be shaved. How do you make the decisions about where the money goes and where it doesn't go? It's also looking at... When we think about being good governors and good fiscally responsible governors, it is looking at what are the inputs into a potential program, what are the potential outputs for it, what are the essentially the return on investment, um, ensuring that we're using the money wisely and that we are using the money that fits the greatest amount of need. So there will be times where we'll have to make tough decisions, but I think that it is around being good governors and ensuring that we are looking at all aspects of it and thinking about it from an almost like a business perspective. How are we how are we getting our most bang for our buck and ensuring we're still keeping service levels at the same or higher, ideally higher, um, but at the same levels in order to ensure that we're creating a safe and healthy community for everyone. 
How uh, have you and the rest of council and the rest of the staff, have you given up on being able to get more money or is work still being done to try and find more from the province? Oh, no, we are absolutely still working with the province and with all orders of government and, and advocating for additional investment. We're looking at just being sure that we're made whole. So sometimes a lot of these organizations, uh, some of the different levels of government, things have been downloaded to the municipality and there has been promise that there will be additional funding coming. And But we are always looking at this from an advocacy perspective. How are we going out there? We're not going to roll over and just let it be. We're active and making sure that all of council is working very hard at all levels of government in ensuring that we're getting the advocacy that we need in order to get the funds that we need. I guess the one other um, possible solution is um, groups that aren't necessarily funded groups or that aren't necessarily, that are their community volunteer or community groups as opposed to government or city funded groups. Um, I know there are some of them out there, but are they easy to find to step into the breach and do this? This is, this I think is going to be the call out. Come on in, talk to us. Let's work together. Let's find the partnership because I think that in Hamilton, we are a very collaborative bunch of people. The nonprofit sector is extremely strong. The private sector has already started to raise their hand and say, how do we help and how do we get involved? But it is, I'm going to use this opportunity as an open call out to all organizations. If you think you can help, please reach out and let us know because we would love the support and we would love the opportunity to pick your brains on that. That is Councillor Tammy Wang. Uh, Really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about this today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have heard now for, I don't know, since COVID, since before COVID maybe, about what a difficult job market we are in these days, that that it is tough to find people, tough to retain people, tough to keep people around in the city of Hamilton. They gave some of their non-unionized workers 15% increases this year to retain their workers. That's your money being paid for that. Nonetheless, what is it that is getting people to stay at their jobs these days? What are the, what are the lures? What are the incentives? Well, there is a, uh, a report, the Robert Half salary guide just out, um, that goes through some of these things and tell us what companies are doing to try and attract people, get good people, and then keep them working there. Tara Perry is director with Robert Half. She joins us now. Tara, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm great. I really appreciate you coming on because I got to think that um, there, well, I don't have to think, there, there was a time, and it probably wasn't all that long ago, that if you ran a company, the expectation was people were lining up at your door to try and get a job and they were fortunate that you would give them a job. It seems things have pivoted a little bit. Things have definitely pivoted a little bit. We are firmly still in an employee's market where employees have choice. Um, I think, however, we have started to stabilize a little bit and we've come to a place of of some mutual respect and understanding with employers. Um, Employers can't just dictate terms of employment anymore and employees can't just ask for the moon 
uh, and expect it either. So we've, we've reached a bit of an equilibrium, but it's definitely still in an employee's market. We know, uh, you're, from your description, we know there was a time when the former was the case, when employees could just, employers, pardon me, could just dictate what they wanted. Was it, was it really a thing that we went far the other way where employees could really call all the shots or was that a bit of an overstatement? bit of an overstatement, but for sure in some sectors with some skill sets, um, it's not far off. You know, in sectors that are really tight, that require a a very specific technical skill, uh, for sure. There there was a time that employees could almost dictate uh, their terms of employment. Uh, We've moved away from that. And like I said, things have, have reached a bit more of a balancing point. But we're still definitely in that place where, uh, you know, employer employees are, are looking for choice. They know they have options, and so they're they're curious to know what their options are. So what are, I mean, look, in the past, uh, and again, maybe this is obvious, but in the past, the thing that people always wanted was more money. And I'm assuming they still want more money. That That's always going to be a, a lure for someone to come and work, but... Is there more than just money that's now being sought by people? Who, if, if you want me to come and work for your company, what are they asking for? Yeah, it, money, uh, money is still number one. Cash, cash is still key for sure. Um, however, a very close second is flexibility. Uh, employees want flexibility. And it's important to understand that flexibility doesn't just necessarily mean a hybrid working model or fully remote work. For some people, flexibility means uh, the ability to drop their kids off at school in the morning and so start a little bit later, or maybe it's leave work a little early to get to your favorite fitness class or sports game. Um, And so flexibility can mean different things to different people, but flexibility is, is a very close second. In fact, we have found that uh, amongst working parents, they would take a pay cut really? in order to have more flexibility in where, when, and how they work. Does that suggest that their jobs are already paying them very handsomely then, or is it really a sacrifice they're willing to make to, to, to stay at these jobs? Uh, it's really a sacrifice they're willing to make to stay, to, to, to work, to have better balance. Um, you know, gone are the days of people commuting an hour and a half each way five days a week. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot of employers who still ask for it to be that way, but it doesn't have to be. And so employees will look for other work that provides them with more flexibility, even if it does mean compromising to some extent on salary. Mm. Has it? There are people who will who will blanch at this question, but has it gone too far? I mean, there there is something honorable about a really strong work ethic. Are we losing that, or is this just bringing more balance into things? Uh, I don't think we're losing work ethic. I think we're bringing more balance into things. I think there's some fads. You know, social media does a really good job of marketing certain trends, and you hear things about like lazy girl jobs or. Uh, quiet quitting. But in reality, most people still really want to do well at work. They have a lot of pride in the work and are working really hard. So I don't think work ethic has gone by the wayside. 
I think we just need to reframe how we work. Why do people have to be in the office five days a week? Mm, yeah. What's the purpose behind it? If you can justify a purpose, 100% continue to work that way. But if there isn't a, a true purpose behind it all day, every day, then why not offer some flexibility? One of the really interesting things that came up during COVID and then when people are working from home is now that we are returning to normal life, there are a lot of people, as you've described, who kind of like, we'll call it flexibility or whatever, the option to be able to work from home. The tricky part here is there are some jobs that just don't do as well when you're doing it from home. Some are fine. Some you, some you could work every day from home and get everything done. Others though, not so much. And we've even seen in some government positions where the unions have fought for the right and the work and the, the companies, the government is saying, the, the, the offices are saying, yeah, you got to be in here. We need to have people in here. But it's, yep. it's very tricky now when Bob can stay home, maybe a different job, but Steve also wants to stay home, but it's not always the same thing. I, 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 absolutely. You know, what is fair is not always equitable. Equitable. What is equitable is not always fair, but you have choice. If your job is one that requires you to be in the office all day, every day, you need, you need to recognize that that is a choice that you are making. Now, different markets have different realities and different jobs have different realities. That's not lost on us. Yes. There's not too many uh, surgeons but, that are able to work from home, for example. Right. Or nurses. Yes, exactly. Um, or teachers, you know, and, and that, that is true of a lot of professions. Um, and so if it's really important to you, then maybe you do need to look at the profession. There are some office jobs that are best served when you are in the office. That's not lost on us either, but that is a choice you are making for your line of work. And if working from home really matters, then maybe you need to think really deeply about the kind of work that you're doing. Uh, but we are finding that the hybrid work model or having some flexibility tends to check most boxes for most people. Uh, okay. Leaving aside those jobs that are the obvious ones. And you, I mean, you've alluded to a couple of them or whatever. I mean, th where you, mm -hmm. you have to be in the workplace. There's just no other alternative. You can't be a fireman who decides he's going to work from the home office. I mean, that's ridiculous, Correct. but, <laughs> but there are some, as, as you've said, where you do better in an office, but you don't necessarily have to be in the office. I mean, banks have cut back on the number of people in the building uh, it's nice to go into a bank and be able to find a person who can help you, but most of the stuff you could get over the phone or online. Is it hard mm -hmm. now for companies when it's not essential? You're not a firefighter, you're not a teacher, you're not a doctor. Is it becoming difficult for those companies to convince people that it's better that they be back? Yes. In short, yes. Uh, you You have to think about it from a... We are in a tight labor market. You know, the, the economy is slowing, sure. I'm no economist, but you can see that. The unemployment rate is slowly creeping up, but it's still well below any concerning number. Our labor market is tight. And the more parameters you put around a job, the tighter you make your candidate pool. It's just simple cause and effect. Mm. So if your salary is inappropriate or not aligned with market 
and you're asking people to be in office five days a week and you're not giving appropriate benefits or vacation time, every time you add a parameter to your role, you shrink your candidate pool, you make your labor market that much tighter. You know what, you just mentioned, and, you mentioned another word though, because we've talked about um, convenience, about flexibility, about salary. Mm-hmm. Benefits mm-hmm. is a word that I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people don't have benefits these days. Uh, same with pension. How, how much are those things which are supplemental, let's use uh, as a phrase, are, are mm-hmm. those still a big, big deal or are those almost secondary now to the flexibility and the pay? No, those definitely still matter. They definitely still matter. I would say it, it's sort of third on the list. You'd go salary, you'd go flexibility, you'd go benefits or other perks or how they're defined. You know, some companies may not have a health or extended health benefit plan, but maybe they offer a health spending account instead where they give employees a dollar value for the year that's paid out monthly. Um, that that's an alternative to having a what could be costly benefit plan but benefits still matter uh, rsps do still matter not all employers have them but it does matter because pensions have fallen a bit by the wayside unless you're in the public sector or with big large um, organizations it tends to be more about an rsp contribution or matching contribution it does still matter. Employees look at all of the facets. And, and so if you're offering 100% remote and a reasonable salary, then maybe an employee will compromise on whether you offer benefits or not. Uh, but if you're asking somebody to be in office 100% of the time and the below market salary and no benefits, you're, you're massively shrinking your candidate pool. Just got time for a couple more things here. Uh, one of them, you mentioned public sector. Is there comparative comparison being done? I mean, well, if you're working in the private sector, are people looking now saying, yeah, I know it's different from the public sector. They get bigger increases. They've passed us. They get the benefits and the pension, all that. Or are people saying, no, I don't care if what your reasons are. I expect to be paid similar to someone who's in the public sector. Um, it's, uh, Yes and no. There's a, there's an understanding that if I'm going to go and take a government job or work for a crown corporation or work in healthcare, there there's a cost benefit analysis to that. There's great benefits and good uh, long term stable employment with a pension versus I'm going to go work for a big private enterprise whose salaries may be 10 percent, 15 percent higher, but the stability maybe isn't there. Um, so people are weighing those options out, um, but you know it, it's not for everyone. Not everybody wants to go run the rat race corporately, and not everybody wants to work in for a government or a crown corporation. Before we go, uh, we've talked a lot about how it's imperative or harder, or you have to work if you're an employer to try and keep people in your company. Uh, we've heard that a lot. We've heard that over the last little while that you really have to do that. Mm-hmm. But is, th- is there actual evidence that people are leaving rather than just simply saying, I'm going to leave if I don't get this? Are we really seeing them go? Yes. Yes. People will go, especially if they've advocated well for themselves and still aren't seeing a return on that. 
if somebody builds a good business case for themselves and goes and speaks to their employer and asks for a raise and brings market data uh, to justify it and the employer says no and they're not willing to offer extra perks or benefits or even career succession planning in, in some way, shape, or form, people will leave. We are seeing it. Um, they leave hand over fist in some instances. I assume, so, though, that they better be good at their job. If you, if you, yeah, over, if you overestimate yeah. your ability and you leave because you're, you may find yourself in a tough spot would be my guess. Yes. So most people don't leave the job they have until they have one to go to. Uh, and that's advice that we would still give. Yep. So don't <laughs> yeah. leave your job until you've got one that's to go smart. to. Uh, it's just good life advice in general, but we do see them leaving for sure. That is Tara Perry. She is a director with Robert Half. The Robert Half Salary Guide is out. You can find all kinds of other things about it online. It's a fascinating look at uh, where we are in 2023 with the working world. Tara, thank you so much for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for the conversation, Scott. Happy to be here. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I spent last night reading uh, most of, I didn't get through all of, most of a book uh, that I found very um, thought-provoking. It's, it, the book is called Misfortune and Fame. It's the idea that we all want to be rich and famous. And I would have a hard time making a compelling argument that that's not true. I think most people deep down probably believe that they would like to be rich or famous or both. I mean, you get more money, you can do stuff. Who doesn't want to be rich? And famous people, don't they get all the breaks? They get all the attractive spouses and they get all the big houses. And, you know, it's very enticing to be rich and famous or rich or famous. But I tell you what, reading this book, um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm second guessing and contemplating whether or not it really is all it's cracked up to be. The author of the book is Paul Burton. He is the editor in chief of the Hamilton Spectator joins me now. Paul, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. So, uh, tell me once upon a time, um, maybe even up to the point when you started to pen this book, was the desire there ever to be rich and or famous? (laughs) Well, as you said, we all want to be at least rich, and those of us, uh, uh, probably the same number of people probably want to be famous uh, without thinking too much about it. I, I think that uh, people like you and I who are, have some modicum of fame know that it has its considerable drawbacks as well as, as its benefits. But for people who, I mean, m- much of what you write about are people who are when we think of famous people, we don't think of Paul Burton and Scott Radley, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure. We think of the, you know, Hollywood stars and sports stars and that kind of thing who are, you know, they can't walk down the street without being stopped or they, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and you've seen that. I mean, I don't want to go too much into your personal life, but you have seen this personally. Your family, you come from a, a famous family. You've seen this. Did that right away make you have hesitations about the idea of fame? I'm not so sure that inspired the book, although, you know, I obviously, as you say, I did experience some of it. My dad was famous, so he got recognized a lot. And it, as I said, it had its benefits and its drawbacks. He, he liked it and he hated it at the same time. I think that most of us, though, look at, uh, you know, Hollywood fame and think, wow, isn't that great? Everyone loves them and they're rich and they're happy and 
they've got all this stuff and they're living these fantastic lifestyles, which without really um, considering or reading between the lines that, wow, uh, there, there are all kinds of drawbacks to it uh, and, and all kinds of problems. Yeah, it's wonderful until you hear the story that comes out about the, you know, something has gone horribly wrong, a, an assistant has spilled the beans or a, a babysitter has, you know, come forward saying she's pregnant with the person. I mean, you, and you mentioned some of these things. I mean, it's it's all glorious until it's not. And inevitably it is not. <laughs> there isn't one rich person who won't tell you that they don't have troubles and problems, some of them larger than others. And of course, uh, the book doesn't have that much sympathy for them. They are, after all, rich. And, and you know, we all have problems, rich or poor. Yeah, and, you know, the book does, um, and I think most people, when people say, I want fame, uh, tell me if you think I'm wrong in this one. I don't think people think about accidental fame. Um, let's use a name. The first name that popped to mind when I thought about that was Abraham Zapruder from way back in the Kennedy assassination, a guy who just happened to be standing, taking video or taking film of a parade and ends up being one of the more famous names in American history. Total accident. I don't think people think about that. I think people think about, I want to invent something. I want to become a sports star. I want to become a music, you know, a rock star, whatever else. I don't, I, I think people think of the intentional fame and all the trappings that come with that. Exactly. And, and when people seek fame, uh, then they have to, uh, you know, they have to pay the consequences when, when journalists come uh, snooping around, about, not just about their triumphs, but their tragedies. And uh, there inevitably are tragedies and some of them uh, it, it seems to me, and the book will point out in many in many hilarious anecdotes that um, some of them are indeed uh, hilariously tragic. Do you think it is different, though, for the people who are accidentally famous? It doesn't seem like their situations often are nearly as bad as those who seek it. I, I think there are, I don't think there are many examples, uh, in, relatively speaking, many examples examples of that. But I do feel some sympathy for those folks who just uh, found accidental fame and, and didn't seek it. And as a journalist, I, 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 I offer them sympathy and maybe I would be inclined to offer them a wide berth if mm. I could. Well, because it, it seems very often that the accidental, not always, but the accidental famous people are often not famous, but infamous. And again, the first name that pops to mind when I thought about that is Guy Paul Moran who got caught up in a murder trial where he was the accused and turns out that he was not the person who did it, but everybody who was alive at that certain time in Canadian history knows that name. And if you say it, people think exactly of that. He'll never, he's sort of disappeared. He's gone underground. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen or heard from him in years, but if he, but if he emerged, nobody would think, oh, that's just a guy. We would immediately remember him as an infamous name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's the, those ones. I don't know. It's it's a different. Uh, not seeking it maybe is a little bit different. I'm not sure. Well, it, then there are then there are just rich people who have so much money, yes. and and they're so debauched, if you pardon the expression, <laughs> that they can't avoid making a public scene every other night. And, uh, you know, those are the ones that we don't have as much sympathy for. One of the things you write about, and I found it really fascinating because I hadn't considered it, and yet you're correct, I believe, is that you point out that there are some people who have come into huge money with the intent or with no intent of becoming debauched, as you say, 
But it's almost like when you have that much money, inevitably you will end up using it. No, nobody, nobody is a billionaire and still lives, well, maybe uh, Buffett, but even he spends money, but very few, let's say people become a billionaire and live the way they did beforehand. They may try it first, but they always seem to succumb to the lure of that money. Yeah, I think that's human nature. It's, uh, it's inevitable in most cases. There are, there are of course, uh, exceptions, but I agree. Most, most people, um, I mean, spending money is fun. And as you say, until it's not, I mean, you, uh, buying a, a yacht is fun and sailing it is fun. Um, until it sinks. It sailing it is <laughs> yeah. sometimes not as much fun or, or trying to sell it is sometimes not as much fun. Uh, okay. So we started this, I mean, as, as I said, we had, uh, you know, you've had a taste of this with your father, by the way, your father was Pierre Burton for those who are wondering about the family name, you've had a taste of it, but what, what was it? Was there a celebrity or a rich person that you saw on TV one day and said that got your brain thing? Like, what was it that inspired this? What got you going down this path? Oh, actually it was the research that I did for my, uh, last book, Shopamania. Uh, which there was just so many uh, hilarious stories about people uh, buying stuff and getting in trouble, spending money, uh, and and uh, being famous. I thought it would make another book. Yeah, I didn't have. I I didn't think about it as a as a young man. No, and and again, you know, the idea with the spending and shopamania, which ties into this, and you allude to this as well. It's amazing. The more money you have. When you decide you have to start buying stuff, the stupid things that people will buy. I mean, it's some of the things that wealthy people, like really wealthy people have bought, it's, it, it truly is stunning to think that's what I'm going to spend my money on because I have nothing else to spend it on. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we all have our, no matter how rich or poor, we're, we've all been there and bought things that we didn't, we realized True. we didn't want. <laughs> no, true, but I mean, some of the... Um, but we didn't spend a, a $100 million on it or 10 exactly. Well, how much of, and I know you're a fan of art, um, and, and, you know, as someone who can discern, I think, between good and bad art, you're probably, you've probably looked at some people who have spent millions, $50, $100 million on a painting or some piece of art, and you've, really, that? I mean, that's, it's just, the more money you have, the more your tastes seem to... Well, Change. I think in the case, I, I think I think again, it ties into fame, right? People who collect art don't collect it just for themselves. They want others to know that they've got a good collection, or they ah. don't build a house just to live in. They build a house so people can see them living in it, or driving a car that you know, a car might be fun to drive, but they also want people to see them do it. It's again human nature. And again, something you write about in the book, you you, you talk about you build this house so people see you, but then you also try and build it so they can't see the house, <laughs> yeah, which becomes exactly this conundrum. <laughs> Yeah, I want to be seen, but not really seen. I want you to know I'm rich or famous, but not really know that I'm rich or famous. It's a real conundrum people get into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, the book is called Misfortune and Fame. Um, now, is it out yet, or is it coming out in the next few days? It's coming out on the 9th, so it should be in bookstores next week. Uh, oh, there you go. It's called Misfortune and Fame. It's by Paul Burton. Uh, it is, uh, as I say, I've read uh, all but the last chapter. I ran out of time last night before <laughs> before I had to finally go to bed. I'll do that tonight. It is a great read, though, and I think a lot of people will find a lot of the anecdotes uh, not only familiar, because a lot of the things you've probably heard about before, and when you see them all together, you really do, I think, uh, Paul Ray be, sort of become aware of that question is, do I really want that? 
I mean, yeah, it would be nice to have Jeff Bezos' new $100 million yacht, but do I really want the hassle? I'm not sure I do. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911.